Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church, the show faithfully devoted to relaying news to you about the Vatican and the Catholic Church that's already happened and that you already know. Uh, now, I am fresh back from two weeks of vacation, and today I am rocking my vacation beard. Huh? What do you think? Uh, this is temporary, though. You won't see it next week. My wife has decreed that it has to go, uh, but she has given me a reprieve until the calendar actually turns to September. So on Wednesday, uh, this beard will be a thing of the past. Uh, now, while we have been gone uh, over these two weeks, great time, by the way. We were in Senegalia, a beach town on Italy's Adriatic coast, and then in Barcelona over a weekend actually turned into a three-day weekend because I lost my passport and had to get an emergency replacement. But let's face it, there are worse places on the planet to be stuck other than Barcelona. While we were off doing all of that, <clears throat> the Vatican did not stop spinning on its axis, so lots of news to cover. Today, we've got four big menu items. We begin with new twists in the Vatican's trial of the century. Then we have Afghanistan and the Catholic response of crackdowns and the paradox of this pope. And finally, the green pass and the dog that didn't bark. That all is waiting for you on this week's show, so please stick around. All right, we begin this week with the Vatican's trial of the century. A brief reset. This trial focuses on a controversial, basically real estate deal uh, in London that began in, around 2014. Uh, the idea was the Vatican Secretariat of State, which is like the 800-pound gorilla on the Vatican scene. It's the most important department. It's the one that tells everybody else what to do. Uh, among other things, it has traditionally, though no longer in, in the wake of this deal, but traditionally, it's been responsible for administering uh, the income of Peter's Pence. That's the annual collection taken around the world from ordinary Catholics in which we are all invited, even urged, to contribute basically to support papal charity. However, what's never explained uh, during these pitches that go on in parishes all around the world is that this money isn't just for charity, it's to support the activities of the Pope, meaning basically he can do whatever he wants with it. And in practice, that's meant the Secretary of State can do whatever it wants with it. So uh, beginning in around 2014, they decided to take, well, initially about 200 million uh, of that money, it eventually became 400 million, to try to buy a piece of property in the London neighborhood of Chelsea. That's a kind of posh neighborhood uh, in London. Uh, it was a former warehouse belonging to the Harrods department store chain that was going to be converted into luxury apartments. And the idea was the rental income from those apartments would more than offset the cost uh, of the facility, and it would be a nice return on investment. Now, to execute that deal, the Vatican first got in bed with one shady Italian financier. And when that turned sour, they got in bed with another shady Italian financier. Uh, and that went even more sour. In the end, uh, this all ended up uh, in front of Vatican prosecutors 
who have charged 10 individuals, including for the very first time in history, a sitting cardinal, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, with various forms of embezzlement, graft, corruption, etc. Now, look, I know that against the backdrop of everything else going on in the world right now, right, the, the crisis in Afghanistan, the, the COVID pandemic, uh, threats to the environment, I, everything else, like, you might ask yourself, why should I pay attention to this sort of piddling Vatican trial? I mean, how significant is it measured against the grand sweep of history? All right, well, I understand. But here's the thing. Okay, Pope Francis is a reforming pope. He was elected on a mandate to reform the Vatican, beginning with its financial operations. He has spent an enormous amount of his time and energy over more than eight years now trying to do precisely that. He has issued countless new laws, uh, amendments to existing church law. He has shuffled personnel three times now uh, in the Vatican's various financial departments. He has pledged that we are entering a new day in which accountability and transparency will be the law of the land for the Vatican and it will become a kind of shining city on a hill, uh, an example of virtue uh, in the administration of funds. And so therefore, if, if this trial succeeds, that is, if it's seen as a legitimate step in the direction of transparency and accountability, then the, the epitaph on the Francis papacy will be that measured against one of its core objectives, he succeeded. Uh, if it flops, uh, then the opposite conclusion will be drawn. And so there is actually a lot writing on this. And so let me break down the latest and greatest. First hearing in this trial was on July 27th. At that time, defense lawyers, and there are about 30 of them because there are 10 defendants, and there are three corporate entities. You can imagine how many lawyers they've got. So these defense lawyers demanded that the prosecutors, the Vatican prosecutors, turn over videotapes of their interrogation of Italian Monsignor Alberto Perlasca. Now, Perlasca is a central figure in this drama because from 2009 to 2019, he ran the financial affairs office of the Secretary of State. He was the guy in charge, which means he was there at the beginning of the London deal, the middle, and the end. And all the way along, he was an aggressive proponent of the deal. Under any other set of circumstances, he would have been charged, and he would have been charged huge in this case. But probably seeing the handwriting on the wall, uh, in the spring, Perlaska went to Vatican prosecutors and volunteered basically to turn state's evidence, to, that is, to become a whistleblower. And so ever since, uh, he has given them all kinds of, of evidence about alleged wrongdoing by others, not himself, uh, and in that sense, he's become the star witness for the prosecution. They videotaped that testimony, but it was not turned over during the process of discovery. Defense lawyers complained. Uh, the Vatican court agreed with them. And on July 27th, they issued an order that prosecutors had until August 10th to turn over those videotapes and the, to the court, and then the court would in turn make them available to the defense teams. Now, here's what happened. On August 9th, 
those prosecutors wrote to the court to say, basically, how about no? Basically, what they said was, look, uh, nobody involved in this process agreed uh, that these tapes would ever be released to anyone. They also claimed that uh, turning them over violated the Vatican's penal procedure, which holds that only the written version of testimony is official. Now, I would point out that penal procedure dates to 1913. The telegraph uh, was just coming into widespread use. Radio had only been invented a few years before. Obviously, the written version was the one everyone used. And this other stuff was considered newfangled and untrustworthy. Uh, but in any event, that's the position that they took. Now, here's what's surreal about all of this. Nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. Like, come on, you've watched Law & Order. If Jack McCoy had marched into a courtroom, been ordered by a judge to turn over a piece of evidence, and had refused, you know very well and good that he would have been in jail cooling his heels on contempt charges until he changed his mind. Here, as the Italians would say, un bel niente, nothing uh, has followed. Now, the next court hearing is scheduled for October 4th. I guess we will see then if there are any kinds of consequences for the prosecutors openly defying a clear order of the court. Uh, but I would just point out that if the watchwords of this process are transparency and accountability, the prosecutors so far are refusing to be transparent and they are not being held accountable. Now, until and, and unless that changes, you know, it's, it's hard to see how this, uh, how this process is going to be seen as 100% effective uh, in terms of meeting its stated goals. Uh, all right, second development. It turns out that there is a personal rivalry uh, at the heart of this trial, some bad blood we didn't previously know about, or at least hadn't previously paid attention to. And that is between the presiding judge uh, an Italian layman by the name of Giuseppe Pignatone, and one of the prosecutors, uh, an Italian layman by the name of Alessandro Didi. Uh, now, in Rome, its version of the trial of the century, kind of the closest thing it's had to the O.J. Simpson trial, honestly, was something called the Mafia Capitale case. It involved charges that about 40 public officials, city officials mostly, were in cahoots with the Mafia to siphon off untold millions of euro from city coffers, from things like running welcome centers for, for migrants to trash collection and road repair and, and all kinds of other things. You know who the chief prosecutor in that case was? Giuseppe Pignatoni. And the, the defense attorney for the lead defendant, a guy by the name of Salvatore Buzzi, was none other than Alessandro Didi, one of the prosecutors. Uh, in this Vatican case. Buzzi, by the way, is famous because his, his, he was wiretapped by the police. They bugged, among other things, his car. And on one occasion in his car, he was heard speaking to another mobster who asked him, why are we in this immigrant business anyway? To which Buzzi responded, do you have any idea how much money I make off of immigrants? It's more than drug trafficking. All right. Didi is the guy who defended him and eventually got him off. He and Pignatoni, therefore, are old rivals, and therefore, this Vatican trial is a bit of a grudge match 
uh, if you like, between these two celebrated Roman attorneys. Not for nothing, Pignatoni is the judge who ordered the Vatican prosecutors to turn over the Perlaska tapes. Didi is the prosecutor who said no. Finally, René Brulhart, the Swiss lawyer and hero of the anti-money laundering and anti-financing of terrorism movement in Europe, former chief financial officer of Liechtenstein, uh, and more recently, former head of the Vatican's financial watchdog unit, he is one of the 10 individuals indicted uh, in this Vatican trial, although his process is being handled separately. It's a bit mysterious because he was charged with a failure of supervision, that is, I guess, failing to stop this land deal. Yet his office, the Financial Information Authority, never had any supervisory authority over the Secretary of State. Hard to know exactly what he's supposed to have done about it. But nevertheless, he's been charged. Uh, the new development is that recently uh, he announced that he was stepping down from the board of a lending bank in Switzerland where he'd been a board member for a long time. Now, officially, the explanation is this is for private reasons. Nobody publicly has linked this to the indictment of the Vatican. But it's certainly, the timing is suspicious, isn't it? I mean, it sort of looks like the bank sees Brulhart as damaged goods uh, and simply wanted to sever its link with him until, you know, the dust settles. Now, one of two things is true here. Either Brulhart really did something wrong, uh, in which case prosecutors will have to produce the goods at trial, or he was simply lumped in for purposes of politics, showing that, I don't know, that nobody is above the law, and maybe to try to coerce his testimony against some of the other defendants. And if it emerges uh, that there was no good reason for this indictment, and that he's kind of, his career is sort of suffering a death by a thousand cuts, that too is going to count against our eventual assessment of the Francis reform. Uh, all right, we move on to crackdowns and the paradox of this pope. Pope Francis, in principle, is a pope in favor of decentralization in the life of the Catholic Church, of what he calls solidarity, which is kind of an ecclesiastical word for decentralization. Yet, in practice, no pope has exercised centralized authority more thoroughly or aggressively in recent memory than Pope Francis. Two recent crackdowns are an example. One, in Poland, the Vatican during the past week sanctioned uh, Archbishop Marian Golubiewski, uh, former Archbishop of Rokla in Poland, and now 83, for allegedly covering up cases of child sexual abuse by clergy. They banned him from celebrating public liturgies and basically sentenced him to a life of prayer and penance. Golubiewski is basically the 10th bishop in recent months to face some sort of sanction in Poland for the same offense, that is the cover-up of child sexual abuse, making Poland the number one country in the world with bishops who have been punished for that offense where the reason for the punishment was made public. You've got an, an equal number of bishops in Chile, but there the Vatican never said out loud why it's punishing these guys. At the same time, also in the past week, uh, there was a lay movement in Verona uh, that was suppressed by the Vatican. This comes on top of two other 
slave movements that were recently suppressed by the Vatican in southern Italy. Ah, and it also comes on top of new rules issued by Pope Francis for lay movements in June, uh, which, among other things, established term limits for the founders and leaders of lay movements. They can basically serve a five-year term that can be renewed once after 10 years. They have to be out. And in general, these rules are intended to assert tighter Vatican control. This is because these lay movements have long been the kind of wild west of the Catholic Church, uh, ostensibly responsible either to a, a diocesan bishop or if they're of pontifical right to the Vatican, but essentially kind of autonomous little feudal kingdoms. In both cases, Pope Francis is exercising strong central authority to try to get on top of two of the most pernicious abuses that he inherited, the sexual abuse crisis and the abuse of authority uh, by ecclesiastical leaders. Now, you know, maybe that's absolutely what he had to do. Maybe it's the only thing he could do to try to get on top of these scandals, but it is nevertheless ironic that he is acting against one of the stated cornerstones uh, of his vision for reform of the church, which is enhanced local authority uh, and diminished centralized authority in Rome. We will see how that plays out. Afghanistan, which of course has been the dominant news story over the last month. Uh, to date, Pope Francis has engaged the crisis in Afghanistan virtually every time he's appeared in public, most recently uh, in his Sunday Angelus address yesterday, calling for dialogue among the various parties, presumably including the Taliban, uh, calling the international community to responsibility, and also inviting ordinary Catholics around the world to prayer and fasting on behalf of Afghanistan. Uh, the Pope will have more to say on the subject today. He's, uh, he has given an interview to COPE, uh, that's a leading Spanish broadcaster owned by the Spanish bishops, and information put out by COPE in advance of the release of this interview uh, is that it includes a special message from Pope Francis to the leaders of the United States and the European Union. Meanwhile, Pope Francis's allies in the episcopate, the Italian bishops, have been even more pointed. Recently, the Italian bishops released a statement criticizing what they called short-sighted policies by the Western powers that failed to guarantee security for the Afghan people. That is, of course, principally a swipe at the United States and the consequences of its longest-running war, although they did not mention the United States by name. Basically speaking, the Pope and the bishops, I think, are trying to position themselves not as advocates for the, the Western powers, as advocates for the current regime in Kabul or the insurgents. I think they are trying to position themselves as the lone tribune with a megaphone on the global stage for the ordinary Afghan man, woman, and child whose life has been turned upside down by this crisis and who now faces a deeply uncertain future. Uh, and but that, by the way, is a position that goes all the way back to the beginning of this war. In 2002, John Paul II and his team were deeply ambivalent about the U.S. incursion in Afghanistan, and they urged that whatever else happened, 
the security and stability for ordinary people of that society had to be guaranteed. Obviously, that hasn't happened. 20 years of consistent papal warnings hasn't caused it to happen. You know, we will see how things play out from here. And finally this week, of the green pass and the dog that didn't bark. So, I live in Italy where now the green pass, that certificate that shows you've been vaccinated against COVID, or that you've had a test within the last 48 hours, or that you had COVID and are recovered from it, uh, that green pass has become mandatory for basically everything. Uh, if you want to eat inside at a restaurant, if you want to go to a movie, uh, if you want to go to a museum, if you want to go to the gym, if you want to go to the hairdresser, I mean, there's increasingly almost nothing you can't do uh, in Italy without that green pass. Uh, the same is true of much of Europe. Uh, in fact, the situation is even tighter uh, in France. The UK is moving in that direction. Germany is moving in that direction. Uh, and in the United States, uh, things are increasingly trending that way as well. Now, the one area of public life where nobody has talked about imposing a green pass requirement, however, is public worship. In Catholic terms, go into church. Now, this is the dog that didn't bark. Of course, the reference to the famous Sherlock Holmes mystery in which the, the key to the mystery is the thing you would have expected to happen that actually didn't. When the dog didn't bark at the time of the crime, that's how Holmes knew it had to be an inside job, had to be somebody the dog knew. Well, in this case, you would have expected, because remember how the COVID pandemic began, when the first lockdowns occurred, the church was lumped in there with everybody else. Uh, public liturgies were suspended. Uh, religious gatherings were suspended. Weddings, funerals, baptisms couldn't happen uh, with groups of people. Uh, and this was all by government edict. Now, however, there was tremendous blowback to that, especially the longer it went on. Uh, there were legal challenges to these suspensions of public worship in France and Germany. In both cases, the government lost. Uh, that is, those closures were considered a violation of religious freedom provisions in those national constitutions. There, was, uh, there were court cases in the U.S. that went to the Supreme Court, and again, the government lost. And I think what is happening now is that governments, you know, it's once bitten, twice shy, right? I mean, I think governments are recognizing that they don't want to have to relitigate potential abuses of their power. In any event, what we can report is that nowhere has anyone suggested that a green pass is going to be necessary in order to go to Sunday Mass. Now, Depending on the trajectory of the pandemic, we will see whether that lasts. But I think it is fascinating and telling that the second wave of response to COVID in terms of religious freedom is strikingly different from the first, which may indicate that the blowback the first time around actually made a difference. All right, that's our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. While you're there, please help us out in our online fundraising appeal. We are especially grateful for people willing to make a small monthly commitment. That gives us stability and the ability to plan. Remember, our independence is priceless, but it's not free. We need your help to pay for it, and from the bottom of our collective heart, we are grateful for it. 
We will see you again next Monday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe, stay healthy, enjoy the last days of summer. We will talk to you again soon.